0: As the children are being dismissed for junior church, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34, verse 18. The title of our message this morning is Loss of Reward, Loss of Reward. And of course, uh, I have a little dilemma because the loss of reward stuff is at the end of the chapter, which I might not get to today. So can we call it Loss of Reward Part 1? Too many short people in this church. I gotta. <laughs> and of course, as you know, we we, at least myself, my wife, my family, and ten or so of us uh, traveling on the Compass cruise um, weren't here. Um, we appreciate all the well wishes as we traveled to different Mediterranean areas where the New Testament transpired. Um, As you know, as we were gone, a war broke out in Israel. We were never in harm's way by God's providence. um, We were a couple of days away from entering the borders of Israel until our captain wisely rerouted us. So we didn't get to see Israel this time around. But in case there's any uh, ambiguity on the subject, let me just come out and say this. Sugarland Bible Church stands with the nation of Israel and against terrorism. We have been working our way through the book of Genesis and the last time I was with you, which was over a month ago, <laughs> Jacob has left Haran, where the Lord's hand has been upon him. He's prospered through adverse circumstances. He's made his way back into the land of Israel. Now it's called Canaan. It will later be called the land of Israel. By the way, in the Bible, you'll never find the word Palestine, and you will never find the words West Bank. If you want to talk about the West Bank, it's called Judea and Samaria. If you want to talk about the land of Israel, that's what you call it. Matthew 2, verses 19 through 21, the land or the Eretz of Israel. It hasn't been named that yet in our study, but Jacob has made his way back. He is reconciled with his brother Esau. And they have entered finally into the land of Israel in a place called Shechem. You see his arrival in Shechem at the end of chapter 33. And then there's a horrific uh, crime that takes place against one of Jacob and Leah's sons. Jacob and Leah had six sons and one daughter, Dinah. Dinah, uh, the seventh born from Jacob and Leah is, is raped. And the rapist, whose name is Hamor, or Shechem, father Hamor, basically makes a decision that he loves Dinah. It's a sick and twisted form of love, but The rapists Shechem and Hamor, they enter into sort of negotiations with Jacob, dwelling in Shechem for Dinah. And when you look at verse 13, it says, But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, with guile. This chapter is not promoting or advocating what they did. It's just describing what happened. Jacob, when all is said and done at the end of the chapter, is going to be very unhappy with the choice that his two sons, in this case Simeon and Levi, Dinah's full brothers, made. But they begin to operate through deceit and they said, okay, you can have Dinah's hand if the whole city decides to go into the Jewish practice of Jewish circumcision. Uh, If the whole city is circumcised, you get Dinah. Uh, If you decide to not be circumcised, then you don't get Dinah. And of course, what they're planning here is a tremendous attack against the citizens of Shechem when they're at their weakest point on the third day recovering from that practice of circumcision. And so the city now is uh, circumcised, and we pick up the story there in verses 18 through 24. Hamor and Shechem agree to the arrangement, verses 18 and 19. You see their consent, verse 18. It says, now the words, now look at this very carefully, seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem. Hey, this uh, this seems okay. This seems reasonable. And yet it's the circumcision which is going to be their undoing. It's going to put them in that place of vulnerability. And I bring this up because a lot of people, the way they govern their lives is they do what, as the book of Judges says, is right in their own eyes. It, it seems reasonable to them. And yet that's not how the Christian is to operate The book of Proverbs, chapter 14 and verse 12, says there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are many opportunities that you will have in this world to do certain things. And if you exclude the light of God's word and God's truth, you can make a choice that seems to be reasonable I mean, why not just go ahead and sleep with your person that you're engaged to before you're married? You know, after all, as the saying goes, you got to look under the hood, you know, to see if everything's working right kind of thing. And so many, many young people will cohabitate outside of marriage, prior to marriage, because that's what seems reasonable. And yet the Christian has such a higher calling than that. We don't do things based on what seems reasonable. We don't do things based on what the world system is advocating. We govern our lives according to the principles of God's word. And God's word on this subject of premarital sex is very, very clear. And so you make a decision. Accordingly, based on God's word, not based on what feels good, seems right, etc. Because the book of Proverbs tells us that many things that seem right end thereof in death. I heard a pastor recently describe the Ten Commandments as follows. He says they're not a restriction. What they are is a guardrail. And he was describing taking his daughter when she was very young, his, I think, twin girls, to Pike's Peak, where at that time there was no guardrail. And the two very, very young girls got out of the car and began to rush towards the edge there to get a, a good um, glimpse of everything. And the pastor yelled out, Stop! Stop! Because he saw the danger. That's how God's Word functions in our lives. It's not there to be a cosmic killjoy. It's there as a guardrail for protection. And unfortunately, we're living in a time period in a society where people will throw out the principles of God's Word to do what seems reasonable. And so here, Hamor and Shechem, they submit to this Ritual of circumcision, because it seemed like the very right thing to do. And yet, as we're going to see, this is their undoing. You'll notice there in verse 19, it says the young man did not delay, that would be Shechem, to do this thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. He felt like he was in love with her. He rapes her, then he feels like he loves her. Um, In fact, if you go back to verse 3, you'll see that word love. It says, He loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her, you know, after he violated her. I bring this up because we're living in a society and a culture that throws the word love around constantly and most people have no idea what the word means. Most people think they're experts on love because they've seen the series, The Love Boat. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, love has a definition in the Bible. And here I'm speaking of agape love. Love is patient. I don't see patience exhibited here by Shechem. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a record of wrongs suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If someone is telling you that they love you, the ultimate test is have them drive in Houston traffic, and we'll see what their character is really like under fire. Uh, if they're patient in that circumstance, then maybe they pass the test. But the truth of the matter is the Bible has a working definition or standard for love. But Shechem wants to submit, uh, because for Shechem, he believed that he was in love with this, this girl. And We also find Shechem's people submitting to this. As you look at verse 19, it says, Now he, that's Hamor, and then his son Shechem, was more respected than all of the household of his father. So these two were basically big shots in the city. They were big wheels, so to speak and uh the problem with being a big shot and a big wheel is you're getting you you get very used to having your own way on things if you want to take a woman and you want to violate her and abuse her i mean who's going to stop you you know after all you're you are the the king and so if you look at verse 2 It says when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land. That's the problem. Is This guy is a prince. His father is the king of the Shechemite area. And so he's used to getting what he wants. He probably does not understand the concept of delayed gratification and patience, which is a character trait that God seeks to build into his children. And it takes going through different trials and tribulations for God to build this in us. Patience. I used to pray, God, give me patience and give it to me right now. Uh, It doesn't work that way. It's a character trait that God builds in us as we walk through different circumstances. I mean, God can develop patience in you as you're waiting in the grocery store at the checkout line. God can build patience in you as your Wi-Fi is not working the way it should work. God can build patience in us as we drive through traffic. Don't get upset when these things come into your life. Just say, well, Lord, this is just another opportunity for you to develop patience in us. And so he then, these two, Hamor and Shechem, then report to the rest of the city what they agreed to. And you see the report given in verse 20. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying... Notice the word gate here. In fact, go down to verse 24, because this paragraph is sort of bracketed by the word gate... It says, all those who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. In the ancient Near East, the gate was the position of influence. It's where the deals were made and the decisions were made. Charles Ryrie of the gate, as used of cities in the Old Testament, said the gate of the city was the center of public activity. Here, Hamor and Shechem persuaded the others in the city to be circumcised. You'll notice he's got there in parenthesis, Genesis 19, verse 1. This was the problem with Lot. Lot was a carnal believer in the old sense of the word who fell in love with the atmosphere of Sodom. And so a great sermon title is, Are You a Lot Like Lot? But Genesis 19 verse 1 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of the city. So Lot had not just fallen in love with Sodom, but he had actually become a leader a place of influence in Sodom. The book of Ruth, chapter 4, describes a tremendous decision that is going to be made concerning Boaz and also concerning Boaz's decision to be the next of kin to marry Ruth. And that whole decision, because there was someone, when you followed the kinsman-redeemer concept, there was someone closer in line. And Boaz had to get this worked out before he proposed marriage to Ruth. And that decision was made at the gate. It says in Ruth chapter 4 verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. So these people are at the gate because this is where decisions are made. And what Hamor and Shechem do with the leaders of the city of Shechem is they describe the benefits I mean, let's just go ahead and go through with this ritual of circumcision. Um, They describe a number of things. They're, They're in verse 21. These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage. Now, if you're wondering what this chapter is doing here in the Bible, you should circle that second part or underline that second part of verse 21. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Had what happened here not happened, the Israelites under Jacob would have intermarried with the Shechemites. Israel would have lost her distinctiveness had she done that. Had Israel lost her distinctiveness, God would not be able to use the nation of Israel the way he designed her to be used. The whole purpose of the nation of Israel was to be separate from the nations of the earth. And when God called the patriarch Abram from the Ur of the Chaldeans, and formed through him, beginning in Genesis 12, the nation of Israel, he was specifically told to purge himself, to leave rather, from his pagan background in Mesopotamia. When you study, I think it's Joshua chapter 24, I believe it's around verse 1, it talks there about how Abraham, prior to this calling, was an idolater. And yet the calling of the Lord on Abraham was to not be just like everybody else. It was to be separate. And in that walk of separation, God would use the nation of Israel as his instrument to bless the world. Had they intermarried with the Shechemites here, you would not have a distinct nation of Israel. That would have jeopardized a lot of things. One of which is the coming of the Messiah, who has to be completely Jewish, coming from the tribe of Judah. That would have been jeopardized through this intermarriage. And so if you want to be used by God as a New Testament Christian, the, the idea is to be separate from the world. Many of us are not used by God the way he wants to use us because we act just like the world. You know, we watch the same programs that the world watches. We laugh at the same jokes the world laughs at. And yet the calling of the Christian is to come out from among them and be ye separate. We march to a different set of drums. We, watch, we march to a different value system. And as we separate ourselves from the value system of the world, we now find that we have authority to speak to the world. Lot, a believer, lost that authority because he had become just like the world. But you'll notice the benefits that Hamor and Shechem are reiterating here as they're now talking the rest of the city into the circumcision. Uh, These men came here, Jacob and his descendants. Nothing negative about them. Verse 21, let's let them dwell here. After all, the territory is big enough. And after all, at the end of the day, we can intermarry. Our daughters could marry their sons. Our sons could marry their daughters. And so what you see is a crisis in the lineage leading to Jesus if this intermarriage issue moved into full swing. Now, obviously, the law of Moses would not be handed down for several centuries. But when the nation of Israel went into Egypt, they were taken out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they were given a specific command by God concerning the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away the nations from before you, the Hittites, the Gergishites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the electric lights, the out of sites the mosquito bites, the termites, etc. Just trying to make sure you're awake. Verse 3, Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. God was interested in maintaining the ethnic and moral distinction of the nation of Israel from the Canaanites. By way of application, that's how we are as Christians. We're not to be putting ourselves in situations, partnerships, marriages, where the world system has an ability to influence us more than we have the ability to influence it. We are in the world, but not of the world. And as we walk out the principles of practical sanctification, what you'll discover is people will, will know that you're different. And once they understand that you're different in the moral sense, not in the sense of being crazy and weird, you know, a lot of Christians think they're fulfilling these commands by acting like goofballs. That's not the calling of the Christian but it is to march to a different drumbeat than the world system. Suddenly when you're not laughing at the jokes in the office everybody else is laughing at, they say you're different. They see you're different. And when they see your different value system, then what happens is they're going to listen to you, they're going to respect you. They may not say that. They may put you through some derision. But your difference from the world gives you the moral authority to speak to the world. Once we act just like the world, our capacity to prophetically speak to the world quickly disappears. The two, father, son, explain to the rest of the city of Shechem what the deal is that was made at the gate. You see that there in verse 22. Only on this condition will the men uh, consented to us to live within us to become one people. There's the problem. These guys are trying to make the nation of Israel one people with us. God is going to show that no, Israel is to be different. Israel is to be distinct. That every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. So, If we, uh, submit, then our self-entitled son here, this prince, Shechem, gets what he wants. He gets Dinah. If we don't submit, and this backs up to verses 16 and 17, then there's no deal. There's a tremendous incentive, too, at work here, and you see it in verse 23. This is the first time this comes up in the chapter as far as I can tell. Verse 23, it says, Will not there?" this is Hamor and Shechem speaking to the Shechemites, concerning Israel, Jacob and his sons and daughter, will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. So, aha, if we go by this deal, then we can make forays, if you will, into their private property. Where did their property come from, by the way? It came from what God said to the nation of Israel at her formation in Genesis 12 and verse 2. He gave them a series of promises back then. And one of the promises that he made to them is, I will bless you. That's why you see the nation of Israel continuing to be materially blessed in spite of adverse circumstances. This is why Jacob continues to be blessed in spite of the fact that he had been sojourning in Haran under Laban for so many years where he was cheated. And no matter what seems to happen to Jacob, he continues to be materially blessed. Why why does the nation of Israel continue to be materially blessed? There's a reason for that in Genesis 12, verse 2. God said to the nation of Israel, I will bless you. Why is it that the world today is turning on Israel, acting as if the nation of Israel is the cause of all of the problems in the Middle East, acting as if the nation of Israel is the cause of all of the problems in the world. As you listen to the various politicians and talking heads talk, somehow this latest attack, Israel must have brought that on herself, surely. Why is it that in the midst of all of these attempts to drive the nation of Israel out of her land, why is it that the nation of Israel continues to stay there? And be blessed under God. It relates to Genesis 12 and verse 2. God said that he would bless them. In fact, every time Israel is attacked, what you'll see in the Bible is not only do they survive victoriously against overwhelming odds, but they they even get a holiday out of the whole deal. Israel was attacked in the book of Esther by the diabolical Haman. He plotted the exact day when the Jews would be exterminated. As you read the book of Esther, you'll see Israel surviving, and actually a holiday comes out of that called Purim. In the intertestamental time period, you'll run into a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who is sort of a type of the future Antichrist. He, Daniel, predicted his arrival 400 years in advance in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. He went into the Jewish temple and he desecrated it. He outlawed Jewish scripture. He forbade the practices of Judaism. And not only did the nation of Israel in what is called the Maccabean Revolt, survive, recapture the Temple Mount, and liberate it under Hebraic Jewish rule. Not only did that happen, but they actually got a feast day out of the whole thing called Hanukkah. There is a very interesting pattern that happens over and over again in Scripture and in our world concerning the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is going to be just fine. Because of what God said back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. And if you don't understand this and you just come from the mindset of the world system and you're filled with anti-Semitic hatred towards the Jewish people, you're going to be perpetually frustrated. Because Israel is the only nation that exists in human history that has a covenant from God. What I mean by that is a covenant coming from God to them. The, the United States and what's called the Mayflower Compact, which was a wonderful thing, around 1620 when our forebears came to these shores and they said this country exists for the advancement of the Christian religion, famous document, Mayflower Compact, they made a covenant from them to God. Now, that's a wonderful thing, but Israel doesn't have that. Israel made no covenant from them to God. It's the other way around. God made a covenant with them. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18 says, In that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And this is why the nation of Israel continues to survive and thrive. Outside of the land, she survives and thrives. Inside of the land, she survives and thrives. She has survived attempt after attempt after attempt right into modern day times. Adolf Hitler moving forward to wipe the Jews off the map and yet somehow all of those attacks are unsuccessful. And so what you see here with Jacob is he has property. He has animals. To such an extent that the Shechemites are taking notice of this, they kind of want in on the action, and he's gotten all of these things despite the fact that he has been mistreated by Laban. In fact, over in uh, Genesis chapter 32 and verse 10, Jacob makes the statement that, look, I crossed the Jordan into Haran with nothing but my staff. And staff doesn't mean his secretary and accountant and administrative assistant. His staff, the wooden staff, that's all he had. He went up to Haran. He's mistreated for 20 years by Laban, as we have studied. And he comes out of that situation wealthier than when he went in. That's the power of the Abrahamic covenant. This is what the nation of Israel has. The Shechemites take notice of this and they say, you know what, let's let these Jews intermarry with our daughters because we want in on the material action. The Shechemites here are demonstrating a mindset of materialism. Love of money. When a person loves money, They can't make spiritual decisions. It's impossible. Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, You cannot serve God and wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Some longing for it have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Biblically speaking, there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with possessions. The issue is, do your possessions possess you? Do you have your money or does your money have you? Once it takes an idolatrous place in our hearts, we can't make good decisions unto the Lord. And that's what you see happening here with these Shechemites. And then this uh, agreement is entered into. You see it there in verse 24, their consent. And then the mass circumcision of the city. Uh, You see there in verse 24, it says, all who went out of the gate, notice the emphasis on the gate, That's where the deals went down in the ancient Near Eastern cities. All who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of this city. So they consent at the gate. The mass circumcision takes place. And this mass circumcision is now preparatory for the mass slaughter that we see manifesting itself from verse 25 to verse 31. So Jacob has arrived in Shechem. Dinah has been raped. There have been negotiations for Dinah. The deal is you get Dinah if you're mass circumcised, the whole city, Jacob, His sons operating under deceit and guile. Now the whole city is circumcised. And now what you see is the slaughter of the entire city. Notice, if you will, verse 25. Now it came about, verse 25, on the third day when they were in pain. That two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the cities unawares and killed every male. Notice, uh, first of all, the timing of this. They're now the Shechemites on the third day of their recovery from circumcision. And everybody tells me, and all the commentators say, that's when the pain is the worst. And that's when the inhabitants of the city of Shechem are without defense. This is, and I'm not advocating this at all, I'm just saying this is how the world works. This is an ancient warfare practice. I don't mean to sound the alarm too much, but it's sort of like sending a biological virus into a country. Of course, I'm speaking hypothetically. Something like that could could never happen, right? And as that country is physically recovering from a biological attack, they're at their place of greatest weakness, unable to defend themselves, and that's where terrorist cells within the borders of our country begin to operate, Am I trying to sound the alarm? I guess in a certain sense, but this is an ancient military practice and at some point we have to stop being naive about how the world operates. God is not behind this. God is not condoning this. This is just what transpired here, right here in a very significant chapter of your Bible. Now notice who the perpetrators are. Verse 25, the two, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. The thing to understand about Simeon and Levi is they were sons of Jacob and Leah. Meaning, Dinah being the girl, the daughter born from that union, six brothers and one daughter, Simeon and Levi were Dinah's full brothers. They weren't half-brothers, as would be the case if they came from Jacob and Zilpah, Jacob and Rachel, Jacob and Bilhah. They are full brothers, and this is why they step in the way they do. Their, Their sister had been violated, as we're going to see in a moment. Their sister was treated like a common prostitute. They are the ones through guile who hatched this plan. And that's why Simeon and Levi are the principal actors. And then if you look at the very end of verse 25, it's the slaughter of the whole city of Shechem. Each took his sword and came upon the city unawares... And killed every male. Now, this word translated unawares is very interesting. You'll find it used in the famous Gog, Magog invasion that we on our Pastor's Point of View program talk an awful lot about. It's a invasion that is coming to the nation of Israel in the last days. It's spoken of aggressively in Ezekiel's prophecies in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's interesting that when you look at verse 8 of Ezekiel 38, the identical Hebrew word unawares is used to describe this attack against Israel while Israel is dwelling in security. Ezekiel says in verse 8, after many days you will be summoned in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose habitants are gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely, batak, that's our same word, all of them. There's a lot of debate and discussion within prophecy circles concerning the exact timing of this invasion. I place it after the Antichrist has come to power in the tribulation period, after the rapture of the church has transpired. And the reason I do that is because it describes the invasion as happening when Israel is dwelling securely. That's not happening right now. In fact, verse 11 goes on and it describes Israel dwelling at rest. That's a different Hebrew verb, shakat, batak and shakat, dwelling in security, dwelling in rest. The only place it really fits is when the Antichrist comes to power after the rapture of the church and guarantees Israel's survival. Then the attack happens, because that's the only time when Israel could be dwelling in security and at rest. But it is interesting, this word unawares, as Simeon and Levi are now slaughtering, going to be slaughtering or are slaughtering the Shechemites, the Shechemites were taught totally off guard. I mean, it's it's almost like they were completely and totally defenseless. Not only did they not see the attack coming, but they were in a great deal of pain recovering from the third day, on the third day of circumcision. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, Dinah's brothers carried out the slaughter. They took each man his sword and came upon the city unawares. The Hebrew root For come upon is batak, which is the word for security. It means they came upon the city boldly, without fail, with full security, knowing that the male population had been incapacitated. So although there were just two of them, they were fully secure in what they were about to do. And what they did was they slew, they slaughtered, if you will, All of the Shechemites. One of the key things to grasp when you study the Bible is you have to make a distinction between descriptive and prescriptive material. God is not authorizing this. And I know God is not authorizing this because these two, Simeon and Levi, are going to lose privileges. You see, the Messiah has to come through a particular tribe. Benjamin, the firstborn, is not qualified because of what something he's going to do in Genesis 35. Simeon and Levi, this is in Genesis 49 verses 5 through 7, are not qualified either because of what they did here. So the honor is going to go to Judah who was not the firstborn, but the the fourthborn. So why does Judah get the privilege? Because the others in the chain who should have had the privilege disqualified themselves. And you can understand why I entitled this sermon, Loss of Reward. It's not like uh, Shechem and Levi aren't going to exist in the Millennial Kingdom. They're going to be there. In other words, their, their, their national place is secure. What is in jeopardy for those two is their prominence in the outworking of God's purposes. And that, my dear Christian friend, is our situation as well. As a Christian, you can go right back to the flesh if you want to. You know, you can sin up such a storm that you might even put an unbeliever to shame. An out-of-fellowship Christian can out-sin any day of the week an unbeliever. And after all, at Sugarland Bible Church, they teach eternal security, right? So once saved, always saved. So what does it matter? I'll just go back to the sin nature. Well, the reason why it matters is not because of your salvation, which is given to you by grace, but rewards that God wants to give you above and beyond salvation. Privileges And how he wants to use you. We go back to the sin nature and the opportunity to be fully rewarded. The opportunity to be used of God to our full potential starts to decrease. And that's what you see happening here to Simeon and Levi. Not only is God displeased with what happened here, but when we get to the end of the chapter, Jacob is displeased as well, saying to his sons, you've brought something terrible on our house. The people of the land will look at us now as if we're odious. They will try to kill us. They will try to destroy us to avenge what you two just did to the Shechemites by way of guile. And that becomes the logic or the basis as to why God raised up Joseph. Joseph has already been born. But when we get to Genesis 37 through 50, you're going to see that Joseph has an awesome responsibility of ultimately being elevated to second-in-command in Egypt by the time he gets to age 30. Through, by the way, many trials that he will suffer from age 17 to age 30, but Joseph finally gets into his position, second in command in Egypt, so God can take the Israelites out of Canaan where they were sojourning and take them to a place of incubation in Goshen, Egypt. Why in the world did God have to go to all of this trouble to get his people out of Canaan to get them incubated or protected in Goshen, Egypt? Part of the problem is the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, became odious amongst the people of the land because of their total vigilante overreaction through guile that they're orchestrating here. And see, by the time you get to Genesis 37, the Bible is not going to re-explain itself and tell us why God is raising up Joseph. The Bible just expects us to understand the content of Genesis 34 before we get to Genesis 37. That's how the Bible functions. And that's why I am a particular enthusiast and advocate for verse-by-verse teaching. You don't understand what is happening in Genesis 37 until you understand the crisis that's now developing in Genesis chapter 34. So, the Shechemites are slaughtered. Dinah, fortunately, is rescued. And we see that rescue through Hamor's death. That's the king the father of the rapist. The king, or they rather, killed Hamor. The king is dead. It goes on in verse 26, and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. Now the rapist is dead. You know, it's interesting that Jesus said something quite profound over in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 52. He said, Those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. A lot of these people that involve themselves in these lifestyles, where they just violate who they want, take who they want, destroy who they want, they're under the deception that somehow they're getting away with everything. And yet the Bible is very clear, payday... Someday, either on this side of eternity or in the next world, God is a, is a judge. He's an avenger. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Proverbs 13 and verse 15 in the King James translation Says the way of the transgressor is hard. I remember talking to my dad one time when I was younger. I had read something in a newspaper about how a person who was a star in pornographic films came to a very early death. I remember bringing this to my father's attention and he says, well, what do you, what do you expect to happen? I mean, the Bible says you reap what you sow. The, the way of the transgressor is hard. And people that involve themselves in total rejection and rebellion against God and make decisions to live contrary to his principles every day of their life, they think they're moving in a direction of freedom. They think they're moving in a direction of emancipation. But the truth of the matter is payday someday. You reap what you sow. You you pay for what you've done, either this side of the grave or in the next world. And that's what's happening to Hamor. And that's what's happening to Shechem. And then you see Simeon and Levi rescuing Dinah, end of verse 26. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Now, after... Shechem raped her, it looks like he kept her in some sort of prison within his own house. So she has not only been raped, she has not only been violated, but she has been treated as a, as a prisoner. And this is why the brothers are reacting the way that they are reacting. They're, they're reacting out of, of anger. And now verses 27 through 29 you see the spoiling of the city. Look at verse 27. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They hold, they held the whole city accountable for what happened. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, The sons of Jacob came upon the slain after they were dead. After Dinah was rescued, came to the act of the sons of Jacob. They plundered the city. The reason was because they had defiled their sister. The pronoun is plural. They defiled. The whole town was held responsible for Dinah's rape since the whole town failed to act responsibly. And then they steal the spoils of the city. That's there in verses 28 and 29. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. Verse 29. They captured and looted all their wealth and all the little ones and all their wives and even all that was in the houses. Now, it's very interesting that when you get to the book of Joshua, it's a description of the nation of Israel getting right up to the Transjordan. And as they enter the nation of Israel, they get victory over city after city after city. Jericho, victory. A city named Ai, victory. But they get to Shechem. Shechem. And there's not even a battle. Why no battle in Shechem? In fact, in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, after the victory in Ai, they get to Shechem and they have a covenant ritual ceremony. There's no battle in Shechem. Why is there no battle in Shechem? Because of what's taking place right here in Genesis 34. The Canaanites in Joshua's day recognized that Shechem belonged to Israel by way of right of conquest under Jacob's sons. And here is another example where the book of Joshua is not going to explain that to you. It assumes you already understand why that is happening because of what happened in Genesis 34. This is why reading the Bible in the order that God gave it in is very critical because subsequent scripture will not re-explain itself. And then the chapter concludes with Jacob, the father of Simeon and Levi, his regret. Notice his complaint. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me. By making me odious amongst the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Of course, there's where Canaan was. It's where Noah's descendants under a man named Canaan settled. There's a description of all of the ites. Here you see the Canaanites and the Parasites mentioned. And Jacob complains to his sons and says, My men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. Now you see why God had to raise up Joseph to get the nation out of Canaan into Goshen, Egypt, for 400 years. Had they had been left in Canaan, they would have been wiped out. Had the nation of Israel been wiped out, then the blessings that God wanted to bring to the world through Israel would have been cut off as well, including the coming of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the Canaanites at this point want nothing to do with the Israelites. That becomes the apologetic for why God, under Joshua, says when you get into the land, you've got to take these Canaanites and completely and totally eradicate you them. Because they have vengeance on their minds because of this overreaction of Simeon and Levi, the Response of the two brothers to what they did is right there in verse 31. But they said, should he, that would be the rapist and probably also his father, should he treat our sister as a harlot? It's kind of interesting that Shechem raped Dinah and then he asked for payment in verse 12. Ask me ever So much bridal payment. Rape, pay me. You treated our sister, in other words, like a common harlot. And Simeon and Levi, it was correct for them, obviously, to rescue Dinah, to stand up for their sister, which any big brother ought to do. But they obviously went way beyond what was appropriate. They should have stopped their vengeance at a particular point, and they did not. One of the reasons I say this is God is going to take Israel to Mount Sinai, and he's going to give them the principle of lex talionis. And you know this principle well. It says, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye. Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, as a young Christian reading that for the first time, I said, well, that's one of the most unloving things I've ever seen. But the truth of the matter is it's one of the most compassionate legal principles that's ever been articulated. You don't take someone else's life and, yes, your life is threatened, You don't take someone's eye unless your eye is threatened. You don't take someone's tooth unless your tooth is threatened nationally. You don't take someone's hand unless your hand is threatened. You don't take someone's foot unless your foot is uh, at issue. You don't burn unless you've been burned. You don't wound unless you've been wounded. You don't bruise unless you've been bruised. In other words, let the punishment fit the crime. It's actually enshrined in our own constitution, in what's called the Eighth Amendment. It's protection against cruel and unusual punishment. Punishment which is totally out of balance to the crime. And actually, when you see this, it's a loving, compassionate principle. Compare that to other ancient Near Eastern legal codes of the day, which demanded punishments that were in far excess of the crime. You bruise me, I'll take your life, kind of thing. It's the kind of thing that Cain, if you remember back to Genesis 4, about 30 to 40 years ago, if I remember right, when we were teaching that, went far beyond in his lifestyle mere vengeance, but it was overboard in comparison to the crime itself. Simeon and Levi are not operating by the principle of Lex Talionis. And you know what? They're going to lose a reward for that. Because in Genesis 49, verses 5 and 7, this is what it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers... Their swords are implements of violence. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxes. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. This is what God through Jacob is saying as Jacob is pronouncing blessings on the twelve tribes of Israel. Translation. Although they were born before Judah, they're not going to be given the privilege of having the Messiah come through their tribe because of their rejection of the principle of Lex Talionis here in Genesis 49 verses 5 through 7. And that is the application for us. As I said earlier, you can go back to the sin nature and still be a believer. You'll see the 12 tribes mentioned in Matthew 19, verse 28. Simeon and Levi are part of that group in the millennium. But look at the privileges they lost because they did things their own way rather than God's way. Paul writes to us, members of the church, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. At this coming judgment seat of rewards, there will be given or not given to various Christians crowns. We even sung about it this morning. Five crowns. I wish I had time to go through them all with you. But there will be Christians in heaven that will be saved, but will be unrewarded. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Revelation 3, verse 11 says, I am coming quickly, hold fast to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. God just does not want to see us arrive in heaven. He wants to see us fully rewarded once we arrive. Simeon and Levi, because they did what was right in their own eyes, forfeited privileges that God wanted to give them. And so look at that. We made it all the way through that particular chapter today. And if anybody is here uh, visiting with us, maybe listening online and they don't know the Savior personally, our exhortation and invitation to them is to trust, even as I am speaking, in the work of the Savior. Don't trust in your own good works to get to heaven. Trust in the good work that He did for you 2,000 years ago. If anybody is here and they need some more explanation on this, I'm available after the service to talk. Next week, you might want to read through Genesis chapter 35 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. I'll invite our worship leaders back up.